Bart D. Ehrman is the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he has served both as the Director of Graduate Studies and the Chair of the Department of Religious Studies. He's got credentials. Professor Ehrman received both his Masters of Divinity and a PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary, where his doctoral dissertation was awarded magna cum laude. An expert on the New Testament and the history of early Christianity, he has written or edited 29 books, numerous scholarly articles, and dozens of book reviews. He's had four books on the New York Times bestseller list, We have all four of them in the Quantum Cafe. Jesus Interrupted, an account of scholarly views of the New Testament. God's Problem, an assessment of the biblical views of suffering. Misquoting Jesus, an overview of the changes found in the surviving copies of the New Testament and of the scribes who produced them and Forged, the book I just held up, which discusses why some books in the New Testament are deliberate forgeries. Professor Ehrman's books have been translated into 27 languages. And so the eight languages that we're translating in tonight, his books are available in your local Amazon.fillinyourlanguage.com. Com. Professor Ehrman's books have been translated. He has been featured widely in the media, including The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, The Colbert Rapport, CNN, The Discovery Channel, The History Channel, National Geographic, and the BBC. His book, The Lost Gospel of Jesus, The Lost Gospel of Judas Iscariot, was originally published in 2006, and it is the topic of his presentation tonight. Please welcome Bart Ehrman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure being with you uh, tonight. Uh, it's been a, uh, a pleasure to be uh, introduced to this, uh, this school uh, and some of the staff, and I've met some of the people. Uh, I feel a little bit odd not sitting on the floor, <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm glad to be with you. This, uh, this lecture is on a gospel that was discovered in modern times. Gospels show up now and then, and this is uh, the most recently discovered uh, full gospel that has appeared, the gospel of Judas Iscariot. 
and I'm calling this uh, an alternative vision of Christianity. So I want to begin by talking about my, the, my first knowledge of this gospel, how I first came to know uh, of its existence, which was through a series of somewhat unexpected events, beginning with a strange phone call that I received almost exactly nine years ago uh, in November of uh, 2004. I was in my office at Chapel Hill talking to a graduate student and my phone rang, I picked it up, and there's a woman named Sheila whom I've known over the years. Sheila is a person who sponsors archeological digs in Israel uh, whom I've known through archeological circles. And we talked for a while, we chit chat, and she asked me at the end of our little talk, what do you know about the gospel of Judas? I thought this was an odd question because uh, I knew we, we didn't actually have a gospel of Judas. And so that's what I told her. I said, well, uh, we, we, don't ha we don't have a gospel of Judas. We know that there was one once because the church fathers talk about it, but it, it doesn't survive anymore. So she thanked me and we hung up and that was that. And I thought, well, that's, that's odd. And so I decided I better look it up just to make sure I had been right about that. And I uh, pulled out my books. I remembered that the Gospel of Judas had actually been mentioned in, a, uh, in the writings of a, uh, of a church father named Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a church father who was a opponent of false forms of Christian belief, in his view. A church father who lived around the year 180 CE, so he, he's living about 150 years after Jesus. He's sometimes known as a heresiologist, which is the uh, highfalutin word that people use when they want to talk about a heresy hunter. Uh, if you, you're out hunting out heresies, you are a heresiologist. And he was one of the first in early Christianity, uh, first heresiologist. He wrote a five-volume book called Against the Heresies, where he attacked a number of different heretical groups, from his opinion, uh, especially groups of Gnostic Christians, about which I'll be saying a few words later on. One of the groups that he talked about was a group that he called the Cainites, the Cainites were like other Gnostic groups in that they believed that the world that we live in now was not the creation of the one true God. How can you possibly say that this world was created by the one true God? This is a world that has hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes and famine and drought and war and oppression and injustice. You want to say God created this place? What kind of God is that? So the Cainites, like other Gnostics, maintained that in fact the true God had not created this world. This world is a cosmic disaster and some of us don't actually belong here. I felt like that ever since the development of the Tea Party. <laughs> what, what world is this? I don't belong. Well, the Canaanites didn't feel like they belonged here. The Canaanites 
were named after a biblical figure that you may have heard of, Cain, the son of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had two sons, uh, Cain and Abel. The thing about Cain is that he murdered his brother Abel. He was the first murderer. So why would a group of Christians want to be considered followers of Cain, the first murderer on earth? Well, it's because Cain murdered Abel and God punished Cain, but the God who punished Cain was the God who controlled and created this world, who was the evil God. Cain was on the side of the other God, the true God. And so the Cainites believed that Cain was right and that Cain was on the right side. The basic teaching of the Cainites then was that the God who created this world is not to be obeyed, that there's a greater God, a greater spiritual force in the universe. Uh, and that Cain was the one who, who followed this God. This led to some rather unusual teachings among the Cainites. Uh, the short story is they thought that all of the bad guys of biblical history were in fact the good guys. And so they revered the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, they obviously they thought Cain was a good guy. And anybody who was a bad guy turned into a good guy for the Cainites, uh, including, uh, including, as we're going to see, Judas Iscariot, who was not the evil betrayer of Jesus, but he was the one who was Jesus' closest companion and friend and who is the one who did Jesus' will. Their unusual teaching got manifest in other ways as well. Since the God who created this world is the God who gave Israel its law, then if you wanted to be on the side of the right God, you should obey the God of this world. So if the God of Moses said, for example, that you should keep the Sabbath, you should not eat pork, and you should not commit adultery, the way to be on the side of the right God was to disobey the Sabbath law, to eat pork, and to commit adultery. <laughs> As you can imagine, they had their share of converts. <laughs> Among other things, the, uh, the remote stopped working. Among other things, there we go. Oh, 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 oh. Right. Gospel of Judas. Among other things, the Cainites, according to Irenaeus, had a gospel of Judas, a gospel that propounded their particular teachings. So I, I looked this up, and I read what, uh, what uh, Irenaeus had said about the Cainites, and I thought, okay, so, uh, so that, that's the story, uh, Irenaeus and the Cainites. So about a week later, I get another strange phone call. This time, it's from somebody I don't know, who identifies herself as someone who works for National Geographic. And uh, after she identifies herself, she says, what do you know about the Gospel of Judas? Aye, 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 okay. So I told her what I know. I said, so, all right, so what's the deal? And she said, well, would you think it would be significant if we discovered it? Uh, yes, that would be significant. All right, how significant would it be? So, well, I don't know. I said, it, it depends what's in it. Uh, 
If it's a Gnostic gospel, as it apparently was, that propounds a Gnostic understanding of the world, then it would be significant for people like me who study ancient Christianity and who are interested in Gnosticism. And so that, that, would, that, would, be, that would be highly significant for us. So, but if it's a gospel where Judas actually is portrayed as the good guy and he has conversations with Jesus and he's the one who knows and he's the, he, he has the right answer, I said, that, that would be big. That would be front page news. So what do you have? And she says, we don't know. Uh, we would like you to help us authenticate this new gospel that, that, that's been discovered. I said, well, okay, so give me some information. I said, what language is it written in? She said, well, it's written in, in Coptic. So uh, Coptic is an ancient uh, Egyptian, Egyptian language. Uh, and I, I can read some Coptic with a dictionary, but I'm not an expert. So I say, okay, well, if it's written in Coptic, you don't need me. You need a Coptologist. She says, oh, great. What's a Coptologist? <laughs> a Coptologist is an expert in the ancient, Greek, in the ancient Coptic language. Uh, somebody who could actually read the text and be able to tell you its relationship to other Coptic texts. A lot of our ancient Gnostic Gospels are written in Coptic, and so you need a Coptologist, an expert in that. She said, well, actually, what we wanted to do was to figure out the date of this manuscript. We want to figure out whether it was a medieval forgery or we want to know, is this really an ancient manuscript? I said, oh, okay, that's fine. I said, then you need a paleographer. She said, oh, good. She said, so what's a paleographer? All right, a paleographer is somebody who studies ancient manuscripts. The way you date an ancient manuscript is on the basis of the handwriting. You do a handwriting analysis. There are people who are trained to do this. Paleo, ancient, graphy, writing, it's a study of ancient writing. And it's because in ancient times, before the invention of printing, handwriting styles changed slowly over time. It took generations to change handwriting. So if you're an expert in ancient handwriting, if you're an expert, say, in Greek paleography, you can date a Greek manuscript within about 50 years, if you're, if you're any good. And so uh, what you need is a Coptic paleographer. So she said, well, all right, but what, what we really wanted to do was to carbon-14 date the manuscript. Could you help us with that? <laughs> no, I can't help you with that. I'm not a scientist. <laughs> I said, look, all right, look, I said, you don't need me. I'll... I'll get you a Coptic paleographer, and you find somebody who does carbon-14, and you'll be set. She said, no, actually, we, we want you to be involved, because we want to know if this thing is authentic, how does it fit into the history of early Christianity? Is this a significant gospel or not? I said, well, I can do that. I mean, that's fine. That's what I do. So, so she said, okay, fine. So uh, we'll find somebody who does carbon-14 if you can find us a Coptic paleographer. All right. Well, so, I mean, as it turns out, I know Coptic paleographers, and so... The third strange phone call uh, was uh, I, I, called a, uh, I called a person that I, I knew named uh, Stephen Emmel. Stephen Emmel is an American who happens to teach in Germany at the University of Münster, and he's one of the world, world premier Coptic paleographers. So I called him up uh, and uh, got him on the phone and said, Steve, I said, I don't know if you've heard this, but they think they found the Gospel of Judas. And Emmel says to me, yeah, he says, you know, I heard that. I think I saw it 20 years ago. Oh, really? 
want to see it again? <laughs> I said, yeah. I said, okay, it's in Geneva. <laughs> I said, let's go to Geneva. And so, uh, so the manuscript was in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, being restored there by, uh, by specialists that National Geographic had found out about. And so Stephen Emmel and I flew to, uh, he flew from Germany, I flew from North Carolina, and, we, uh, and, and National Geographic had found a, a scientist who did carbon-14 datings of manuscripts, and we, we assembled in Geneva, and we went to look, and lo and behold, uh, th they, they had a manuscript there. It was obviously an ancient manuscript. It, it, it was clear. I, my expertise is in, is, is in Greek manuscripts, not in Coptic manuscripts, but this was obviously an ancient manuscript. And we, uh, we were shown it. We were able to examine it. And it clearly was, was the real thing. When we found out who had been working on this for the last three years, there was no doubt in our mind anyway, because the, the, the premier Coptic scholar in Europe had been... Uh, dealing with this thing for three years, and National Geographic just wanted to verify that, in fact, this was what this person had said it was. This is the first page of this uh, gospel. It's a 62-page manuscript. Uh, you will note, uh, whoops, sorry, I did not want to do that. You will note that there are uh, holes in this manuscript. Uh, that makes it very difficult to read <laughs> when there are holes in a manuscript. And so what scholars do who, uh, who do this sort of thing is they figure out what was in those holes, uh, what words were there. And so uh, this is just the first page, and it goes on for a number of pages. This manuscript is 62 pages long, and it actually has four different documents in it. It's a little anthology of texts, and one of those texts, turns out, was in fact and is in fact the Gospel of Judas. This gospel was discovered, we later found out, in the late 1970s. It had floated around on the antiquities market uh, in Europe and then the United States uh, and had been put in a safe deposit box for 16 years on Long Island in a town called Hicksville uh, where, uh, where it suffered from being subject to humidity for 16 summers after being in Egypt for 1,600 years without any damage to it. It ended up being a damaged manuscript, um, but they were able to restore it, and, uh, and there are now uh, stories about how it got restored. I don't want to talk about the restoration of this manuscript. I want to talk about what it is, and I'll begin that by talking about what it is not what the Gospel of Judas is not. So, the Gospel of Judas is not a Gospel that was written by Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, of course, was the betrayer of Jesus uh, and is the bad guy of the Gospel stories. This Gospel does not claim to be written by Judas Iscariot, and it certainly was not written by Judas Iscariot. This gospel was not written by an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. It was written much later. If it's the gospel that Irenaeus knew in the year 180, then it was probably written around the year 140 or 150. So it's probably 60, 70 years after the gospels of the New Testament. This gospel then is not as old as our other gospels. And it is not a historically accurate account of what actually happened in the life of Jesus. 
So you say, well, you know, if it's not written by Judas, and it's not an eyewitness, and it's not that old, and it's not historically accurate, so why is it interesting? <laughs> I mean, it would be more interesting if it was one of these things, right? Well, yeah, it probably would be, but it's not one of these things. It's still really interesting and really important for other reasons. What is this gospel? This is one of our oldest non-canonical gospels in existence. We have four gospels in the canon of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we have a lot of gospels from outside the New Testament. Um, people give various estimates about how many gospels are outside the New Testament. That, uh, that great authority on all things involving early Christianity, Dan Brown, in his book, The Da Vinci Code, <laughs> where most people get their knowledge about early Christianity is by reading the... I tell my students that if they want to know about the history of the Middle Ages, the way to do that is not to watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <laughs> and if they want to learn about the history of early Christianity, the way to do that is not by reading the Da Vinci Code. So Dan Brown says that there are 80 Gospels vying for a position in the New Testament. That's completely wrong. These books are not vying for position in the New Testament. We do know of about 40 Gospels that are not in the New Testament. We know of about 40 Gospels, including now the Gospel of Judas. And the Gospel of Judas is one of the earliest of these 40. So it's a very old Gospel. Not as old as the New Testament Gospels, but nonetheless very old. And even more significant, it's an ancient Gnostic Gospel. I want to explain what that is before talking specifically about the gospel of Judas itself. I want to talk about what early Christian Gnosticism was and was all about. The short story is that early Christian Gnosticism refers to a group of religions at around the time of the beginning of Christianity. Most of them are Christian in some sense, related to Christianity. But rather than emphasizing the importance of faith in Jesus' death and resurrection for salvation, they emphasize the importance of knowledge for salvation. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosis, spelled with a G, G-N-O-S-I-S. -S. Gnosis means knowledge. These people are Gnostics because they're people who were in the know. What is it that Gnostics knew? Gnostics knew who they really were. They knew who they were, where they came from, how they got here, and how they could return. They knew who they were, where they came from, how they got here, and how they could return. Gnostics realized that they came from the world above, the world of spirit. And the goal of this religion was to provide the knowledge that they needed, the gnosis that they needed, in order to return to their heavenly home. Specifically, we can say uh, several, make several points about early Christian Gnosticism. Gnostics believed that the ultimate true God was an unknowable God. The true God is unknowable. He is so fantastic and so great and so superior and so spiritual that we can't fathom 
what that God really is like. Now, when I was a, when I was a Christian uh, many years ago, uh, we used to say, God is beyond anything we can imagine, and here's what he's like. <laughs> so, Gnostics are somewhat like that. Uh, Gnostics said that the true God is so far beyond anything in this material world that we can't really know him, but then they go on and tell you some things about him. Gnostics believed that this world we live in is not the creation of the one true God, but is a cosmic disaster. (laughs) Creation is a disastrous place. And the reason is because the God who is superior and unknowable didn't create this world. What happens in the Gnostic mythologies, the the Gnostics told mythological, they gave mythological explanations for how the world came into existence. These mythologies begin by explaining how the divine realm came into existence. Because there's not just one God, there are lots of divine beings. This one God had emanations that came out from himself, often in pairs, and these pairs emanated other divine beings, and so you have divine beings with names such as truth, and foreknowledge, and spirit, and Christ, and wisdom, and these are all divine beings that live up in the realm called the pleroma, the fullness. The fullness is the fullness of the divine beings. And according to Gnostics, what happened is one of these divine beings fell from the Pleroma, got expelled from the Pleroma, somehow got kicked out of the divine realm or left the divine realm. And this divine being, who's often named Sophia, which is the Greek word for wisdom, Sophia generated other divine beings outside the Pleroma imperfect divine beings. These other imperfect divine beings believed that they alone existed and they didn't know that the Pleroma existed. And they created this world. They created this world in part as a place to entrap parts of the divine. They entrapped parts of the divine in human bodies. Some people have within them a spark of the divine, and the Gnostic religion is designed to set them free. Some of us are here, even though this isn't our home. And so divine sparks have been entrapped here in this disastrous creation. And the way to escape this entrapment is by acquiring the secret knowledge of who they really are. The divine sparks need to know who they are. This knowledge is not available to everybody. It's esoteric knowledge. It's secret knowledge. It's mysterious knowledge. And it's only for insiders. Now you ask, well, what is the knowledge? Well, the reality is I know the knowledge. But I can't share it with you because I have some questions about a few of you. If I were sure that you too had the divine spark, I I would let you in on the secret, but I'm not so sure. It's secret knowledge. Sorry. Where does this knowledge come from? In fact, you can't 
acquire this knowledge by looking around the world and figuring out. Because this world is a disaster. And the knowledge is not embedded in this world. The knowledge has to come to you from the divine realm. You need a redeemer from the divine realm to come down to give you the secret knowledge that you need. The gnosis that can set you free from the entrapment to your body. You need to escape your body and that happens when you acquire the secret knowledge. And so that's what the Gnostic systems were all about. Jesus is the one who comes down from heaven to reveal the truth that can make you free. So, that's what Gnostics taught. Church fathers who were against the Gnostics considered them to be very dangerous. In part, the church fathers found them very hard to argue with. And the reason was because the Gnostics knew. <laughs> and they knew that they knew. And the church fathers didn't know. And so if the church fathers said, well, you're wrong because of this, they would simply say, well, you don't know. So you can't argue with that. One time I was giving a lecture in Chapel Hill uh, years ago, and I was giving a lecture on Gnosticism, and I was explaining about Gnosticism to about 40 people in the room, and this elderly woman in the back row kept raising her hand and correcting me. And this went on and on and on. So at the, afterwards, she came up to me and shook my hand, introduced herself, and said, you may have noticed that I, I corrected you on a few things. Yes, I did notice that. Uh, <laughs> She said, well, I'm a Gnostic. <laughs> oh, well, then you'd know. <laughs> the Gospel of Judas is a Gnostic gospel that conveys Gnostic ideas, including a particular retelling of the Gnostic myth. I earlier said that Gnosticism is a kind of umbrella term for a number of groups, a number of groups that had, they have differences among themselves, different religions that could be considered Gnostic because they all have the same basic way of looking at the world, the same basic theology, same basic mythology, but different groups had different, different ways of expressing these theologies and these mythologies. And the Gospel of Judas comes from a group, whether it's this Gospel actually was by the, by the Cainites or not, it comes from some distinctive group with its own distinctive features. It is a very interesting Gospel, I think. And so I want to summarize for you what happens in this Gospel, and you can, you can easily uh, get this Gospel yourself. Uh, there are translations that are available. Uh, I, I just recently, one of the books that I recently published is a collection of all the Gospels that did not make it into the New Testament that we still have. Uh, and so, you know, we have a translation of the Gospel of Judas uh, in there. So, uh, let me give you an overview of the Gospel of Judas. We get a hint of what the Gospel of Judas is going to be like from the very first uh, sentence. I, I pointed out, by the way, that there are holes in the manuscript. We're missing about 10% of the Gospel of Judas. We're missing, we have 90% of it. We have the beginning, we have the end, we have much of the middle, but we are missing places. But we do have the beginning. It begins by these words. The secret word of revelation that Jesus spoke with Judas Iscariot in the course of eight days, three days before he celebrated the Passover. 
this is going to be a secret revelation that Jesus delivers specifically to Judas Iscariot. This is a gospel where Judas Iscariot is the one disciple who has an inkling about who Jesus is. As we're going to see, the other disciples don't have a clue. This then is a, it's actually a series of revelations that Jesus gives. He has conversations with his disciples and above all, conversations with Judas Iscariot, his betrayer. This gospel is not going to emphasize the death and resurrection of Jesus as the way to salvation. It's going to emphasize the importance of this, of this secret revelation. And frankly, much of this gospel, if you're not used to reading Gnostic gospels, much of this gospel will be mind-boggling. It is, when Jesus gets, really gets into it and starts giving his revelation about how the divine realm came into existence, it's tough going if you're not used to this kind of thing. Uh, but it is really interesting uh, because of what happens here. So, let me give you some of the highlights. The first encounter of Jesus and his disciples. At the very beginning, Jesus' disciples are gathered around having a meal together. and They're giving thanks over their food. They're having a Eucharist. So the word Eucharist usually refers to the, the communion meal that Christians have, and, and Eucharist simply means thanksgiving. Well, the disciples are giving thanks for their food. They're having a Eucharist meal, and Jesus starts laughing at them. They don't think it's so funny. What, what are you laughing at? We're doing what's right. And Jesus tells them that, in fact, your God will receive praise through this. And they're confused. They say, teacher, you are the son of God. And Jesus tells them that they don't know who he is. Jesus goes on and says, Whoever is strong among you, let him bring out the perfect human being and stand before my face. Stand up and look me in the eye. And none of the disciples can do it, except Judas Iscariot stands up. Even though he stands up, he can't look Jesus in the eye. But Judas does say, I know who you are, where you have come from. You have come from the immortal eon of Barbalo. Uh, this is the point at which you realize you're not going to understand some of this text. <laughs> you're from the eon of Barbalo. Well, if you know about Gnostic writings, Barbalo is a very common name. When I said at the beginning there's this unknowable God and emanations come from this, this God creating the divine beings in the Pleroma, the first emanation is an emanation called Barbalo, who's understood to be the mother of all things. Jesus is said to have come from Barbalo. In other words, Judas knows that Jesus didn't come from this world, and Judas is the only one who knows this. Jesus says to Judas, separate from the others and I will tell you the mysteries of the kingdom. Not so that you can go there, but that you may grieve greatly. Judas is going to learn the secrets of the kingdom, but it's going to be frustrating because he can't go there. That's the first part of this gospel. So, the disciples have a vision that they relate to Jesus they don't understand. And so Jesus shows up and the disciples say, uh, Teacher, we've seen you in a vision. And they start describing this vision that they've just had. They saw a house 
And they saw an altar in the house, and they saw 12 men who were priests who were making sacrifices on this altar. And it turns out that some of these priests who were making these sacrifices were sacrificing their own children and wives on the altar. Some were sleeping with men. Some were performing murder. Still others commit a multitude of sins. And the disciples want to know, what is this thing we were seeing? And Jesus tells them that, in fact, these 12 priests who are sacrificing their wives and children and so forth and so on are, in fact, the 12 disciples. They were sacrificing their wives and children and doing these other evil things, evil in their views. They were committing fornication. They were murdering children. They were uh, doing all sorts of acts of impurity, lawlessness, and error. God has received your sacrifice, but your God is a minister of error. So these, the disciples, aren't the good guys here. They're, in fact, acting, uh, acting in uh, horrible ways, uh, and uh, Jesus reprimands them for it. So Judas then has a vision. Judas says to Jesus, I've had a great vision. The 12 disciples were throwing stones at me. Uh, well, okay, that's easy enough to interpret. <laughs> Sometimes you don't need a deep Freudian analysis to figure this one out. Uh, the disciples are going to hate you, Judas, because of what you're going to do. Judas goes on to say that he saw a house with great people around it, and he wants to go inside. And Jesus tells him that no one born of a mortal can enter that house. It's reserved for the holy. Judas may know about Jesus, but not even he can enter into this house. Jesus then launches into a mysterious revelation about how the world came into being. He says that originally there was an invisible spirit. This is the great unknown God. And this invisible spirit called forth a luminary cloud, and out of this cloud came a being called the self-originate. This point, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> this is going to be a complicated revelation. There are eons that are created, and luminaries that are created, and angels that are created, and firmaments that come into being. All these things come into being, populating the divine realm. And then there comes into being the realm of chaos. And what is the realm of chaos? The realm of chaos is here where we live. Twelve angels are called forth to rule this chaos, and then one in particular comes forth. There's an angel who appears whose face breathes out fire. His appearance was defiled with blood. His name was Nebro, which means rebel. And accompanying him is another angel named Sacklos, which is a word that means fool. And it's Sacklos, fool, who says, let us create a human being after our likeness and image. And they molded Adam and his wife Eve. Humans were not created by the one true God. This human race was created by a bloodthirsty rebel and a fool.
The next section of this gospel is the fate of Judas. Judas wants to know how long people will live, and Jesus tells Judas that he will be a ruler over all the other disciples, and that, in fact, he will surpass all the disciples for an interesting reason. One of the key verses in this entire gospel, Jesus tells Judas, you will surpass them all, for you will sacrifice the man that bears me. Wow. You will surpass them all, for you will sacrifice the man or the human being that bears me. Jesus, while he's here giving his revelation, is also in a human body. But that human body has to be shed so that he can return to the pleroma. Just as those who are trapped spirits here need to shed their body to return to the pleroma. And how is it going to happen that Jesus will return to the pleroma? He has to shed his body, which means his body has to die. Judas turns him over so that his body will be crucified so he can escape and return to his heavenly home. So you will surpass them all, for you will sacrifice the man that bears me. The account continues on then by describing Judas turning Jesus over to the authorities, and it ends by saying, Judas received some money and handed him over to them. Period. Then comes the title, The Gospel of Judas. This gospel does not end with Jesus being crucified. Because for this gospel, that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter that Jesus died on the cross because he didn't die on the cross for the sins of the world. He wasn't raised bodily from the dead because the whole point is to escape the body. The resurrection of the body is offensive to this author. The idea of the resurrection of the body is the idea that you're going to live eternally in your body. But for this author, the body's the problem. You need to escape your body. And so Jesus, too, escapes his body. And so his body doesn't get raised from the dead. He returns to his pleroma, having given the revelation that's needed for people in order to escape this world. The betrayal. The key point of this text, things are not what they seem. <laughs> and things are not what most Christians think. Things are not what they seem or what most Christians think. Specifically, Seven points. Christians, most Christians today, Christians like Irenaeus, Christians who are opponents of the Gnostics, Christians of the side that won the debates between Gnostics and others, the Christians who ended up winning decided what Christians would believe for all time. Scholars talk about the early debates between orthodoxy and heresy. Orthodoxy is a Greek word that it actually comes from two Greek words that means right belief. Orthodoxy means right belief. Heresy comes from a Greek word that means choice. So heretics are people who choose not to believe the right belief. The other word for heresy, a synonym for heresy, is the word heterodoxy. 
another belief. So you have right belief, orthodoxy, and heterodoxy, another belief. As one wag has put it, orthodoxy is my doxy, and heterodoxy is your doxy. <laughs> That's the problem with these terms. I mean, the word orthodox, if it means right belief, by definition, everybody is orthodox. Because everybody thinks they're right. Nobody thinks they're wrong. If anybody thinks they're wrong, they change their views so they'll think what's right. And so everybody thinks that what they think is right, which means that everybody is orthodox. So on one level, these terms are not very helpful as historical descriptors. But historians still use the term orthodoxy and heresy, not to decide who's right and who's wrong, but to describe the group that ended up winning in the debates over what to believe in early Christianity and all the groups that ended up losing. Orthodoxy is the winning side, the heresies are the losing side, and the historians aren't saying that one side's right, the other's wrong, they're just saying that you know, one side won and the other's lost. The winning side said there's only one God, and that continues to be the belief of Christians today, that there's one God who created this world. And the Gnostics say that that's not true at all. There's, there's a whole pleroma of gods, a whole divine realm. There's not just one God. Orthodox Christianity came up, came, uh, finally came out saying that the world is controlled by the one true God. And the Gnostics, including the author of the Gospel of Judas, said no. This world is not controlled by the one true God. This world is controlled by a lower, evil, malignant, ignorant divinity. This world is controlled by a bloodthirsty rebel and a fool, not by the one true God. The orthodox side, the orthodox side said that humans were made in the image of God. No, according to this understanding in the Gospel of Judas, they're made in the image of these lower divinities. They're made fleshly beings, they're not made spiritual beings, even though some of us do have a spark of the divine within. The orthodox side said Jesus is the son of the God who created this world. He's the son of God. No, not for the Gnostics, not for the author of the Gospel of Judas. Jesus comes from the Pleroma. He's from a higher realm. He's a spiritual being, not the son of the lower God who created this world. The Orthodox said that Jesus' death and resurrection bring salvation, and the author of the Gospel of Judas said, no, the death and resurrection of Jesus have nothing to do with salvation. Salvation comes by receiving secret knowledge. The Orthodox side said that the apostles of Jesus are the ones who know the truth. This became a very important teaching in Orthodox Christianity. In Orthodox Christianity, it was taught that the leaders of the current churches, say in the year 180, when Irenaeus is writing, the leaders of the churches were appointed by people who were appointed by people who were appointed by the apostles of Jesus. And so God sent Jesus, Jesus had his apostles, his apostles appointed the leaders of the churches who appointed their successors, who appointed their successors. You see, I mean, you, get, you still have this in the Roman Catholic structure where the Pope ultimately can trace the line all the way back to Peter, the right-hand man of Jesus. 
Well, uh, the Orthodox thought that the apostles who were with Jesus during his lifetime were obviously the ones who understood the truth. And so if you have writings that the apostles wrote, then if you follow those writings, then you're, in, you, you're right. And if the apostles appointed leaders of the churches, then you should follow what the leaders of the churches say. The apostles were the ones who know. That's why you get so many apostolic writings in early Christianity. You get all sorts of books that claim to be written by Peter, or by James, or by John, or name your apostle. Why? In fact, these people didn't write these books. Simon Peter did not write any books. We, in the New Testament, we have two books, the first, first Peter and Second Peter, that claim to be written by Peter. Outside the New Testament, we have a Gospel of Peter. We have three apocalypses of Peter. Writing books in the name of Peter was a cottage industry in early Christianity. <laughs> and the reality is, Peter didn't write any of them, and for a very good reason, because Peter didn't know how to write. Peter was a lower-class, Aramaic-speaking fisherman from the rural area of Galilee who never went to school. He certainly could not write. So why do you have all these books claiming to be written by Peter? Because the apostles are the ones who know, and if you write a book and you're a nobody, then nobody's going to read your book. But if you're a nobody and you write a book and you sign it, Peter then Christians might read it. And so you claim to be Peter. In other words, you lie about it. And people did that a lot. So this is all predicated on the idea that the apostles of Jesus are the ones in the know, uh, but according to the Gospel of Judas, it's not that way at all. The apostles of Jesus don't understand him. They are ignorant. Judas is the only one who has an inkling of what's going on. In the Orthodox view, Judas was the worst and the heinous apostle, the betrayer, the one who is uh, condemned for all time, but not according to the gospel of Judas. Uh, Judas, in this gospel, is the one apostle who actually knew who Jesus was, where he came from, and he knew Jesus' private revelation that Jesus gave to him. This attack on the apostles was not simply an attack on the followers of Jesus. It was an attack on those people who claimed to be the spiritual descendants of the apostles, especially the leaders of the churches in Irenaeus' day. The leaders, according to this view, the leaders of the churches, they are the successors of the apostles. And what does that mean? Well, for the Gospel of Judas, that means that they are ignorant, like the apostles. They are violent, oppressive, and immoral. Immoral, there. Ignorant, violent, oppressive, and immoral. That's what the apostles are. Remember, they have this vision of this altar where they're sacrificing these, these they're sacrificing their own children. They're sacrificing their wives. They're committing acts of immorality. That's the apostles. So the leaders of the churches, yes, they descend from those apostles and they're just like them. Is that who you want to follow? Or do you want to follow those who have the secret teaching that can lead to eternal life? This is why I'm calling the lost gospel of Judas an alternative vision of Christianity. Thank you very much.
we're going to do a question and answer thing, and there's going to be a microphone that's here uh, in the middle. And so uh, if you want to uh, ask a question, just uh, come up to the mic and uh, ask your question. And we're going to have some questions that are also fed in from, uh, from people who are watching this through, uh, through streaming. So uh, just make sure, please, that you give the question loud enough so, uh, so everybody can hear it through the mic. Uh, Bart, real quick, uh, thank you. Um, before we go on any further, you're being translated simultaneously in nine languages, and our translators have asked, uh, as you continue, if you could just slow down on your answers a little bit. There's a little uh, smoke coming from over in that section over there. <laughs> ah, sorry. <laughs> So the way we're going to do this is we are, as you asked, we're going to take uh, questions uh, both online from our streaming group, and uh, we have close to 800 that are, that are joining us from over 40 countries around the world. They're going to be submitting questions uh, through their online program here, and I will interject between those that are here in the hall lining up and uh, our questioners so that our people around the world get an opportunity to ask as well. Okay. So we'll start here in the hall first. Okay. Good evening. Thank you very much for an excellent, even riveting uh, presentation. Made me want to go back to school. Um, my question is whether or not either in the Gospel of Judas or if not in other studies that you've undertaken, if you have any understanding or view uh, with respect to Mary Magdalene or Thomas, Dan Brown notwithstanding. Yes, right. <laughs> right. Do I have any opinion about Mary Magdalene and uh, Thomas? Yes. Uh, opinions about both of them. Um, <clears throat> both of these figures, uh, Thomas and Mary, uh, are important figures to, uh, to Gnostics. So uh, let me first talk about uh, Thomas briefly. Thomas is, uh, is known, out, outside of those interested in Gnosticism, Thomas is thought of as the first missionary to take the gospel to India. Uh, that is a later, later legend. It's probably not historically accurate. We have several books that are connected with Thomas, and in those books, his name is given as Judas Didymus Thomas, or Didymus Judas Thomas. So, as it turns out, uh, the name Thomas is, a, the word Thomas is an Aramaic word that means twin. And Didymus is a Greek word that means twin, which means that his real name is Judas or Jude. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus has, a, uh, has four brothers, uh, James, Joseph, uh, Judas, and Simon. And so, this person is named Jude or Judas the twin, and the question is, twin of whom? Well, in Syriac Christianity, Christianity in the, in the land of Syria, it was thought that Jesus' brother Jude was actually his twin brother. More than that, he was Jesus' identical twin brother. Now you wonder, how can 
early Christians think that Jesus has a identical twin brother if his mother was a virgin. So I, I don't know what the answer is, but I have a hunch. My, my hunch is this. We know from Greek and Roman mythology instances in which a woman gives birth to twins, one of whom is son of a mortal and the other is the son of a god. The most famous instance of this is Hercules. Hercules' uh, mother, uh, Alcmena, was was pregnant already when Zeus looked down from heaven and saw Alcmena, saw that she was drop-dead gorgeous, decided he had to have her, came down, had sex with her all night and uh, while her husband was off at war, and, uh, and then went back up to, went back up to heaven. Uh, he, came in, he, he disguised himself to look like her husband. She thought her husband had come back from war, uh, because Zeus looked just like her husband. But Zeus went back to heaven. Turned out the next day her husband did come home and wondered why his wife didn't welcome him with open arms. <laughs> she just had a long night frolicking in those arms. So, um, <clears throat> but as a result, Zeus, uh, Zeus or Jupiter got her pregnant too. And so Hercules had a twin brother, Iphicles. Uh, Her in Greek, Heracles and Iphicles. One of them, Iphicles, was the son of the father and the other was the son of Zeus, or Jupiter, depending on whether you're doing it in Roman or, or, or Greek. Well, it may be that these people thought the same thing, that God had gotten Mary pregnant, but that Joseph also had gotten her pregnant, so they didn't believe in the virgin birth, these people. But, uh, but he was a twin brother, and it turns out in some of these stories told about Thomas, uh, they play on the idea that he's actually Jesus' twin. Uh, the, the most interesting story is in the, in the Acts of Thomas, which is, a, is the first account we have of Thomas going to India to be a missionary. Thomas lands on the, en route to India. He lands at a city. Uh, he's, he's on a ship, and he, they land, and they, they go in the harbor. And there's a, um, there's a couple getting married there. The, the daughter of the king is marrying a local aristocrat. This, this Acts of Judas is, a, is an ascetic text. It's a text that believes you should not indulge in the pleasures of the flesh. So you shouldn't eat good food. You shouldn't drink good wine. You shouldn't have sex, even if you're married. Well, so, uh, I mean, that's the point of view of this, of this text. Luckily, it did not make it into the New Testament. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, Thomas tries to discourage this married couple from having sex, even though they just got married. And he has no luck at all. He... They kick him out, he leaves, and then they go into their bridal chamber, and there he is sitting on the bed. They don't understand this because they just saw him leave. Well, actually, it's his twin brother, Jesus, who's come down from heaven in order to try to convince them not to have sex. And, you know, he, he's the son of God. He's more effective rhetorically. And so he actually convinces them not to have sex, and they don't. And for the, this book, that's a, that's a good thing. And so, uh, but, but this is playing on the idea that they're identical twins. So, so we have these stories about Thomas. Uh, we, have, we have books allegedly written by Thomas that are, uh, that are um, interesting gospels, not in the New Testament. The, the, the Gospel of Thomas is the most famous of the non-canonical gospels, a collection of 114 sayings of Jesus, some of which Jesus may actually have said, uh, that was discovered in, in 1945. So that's Thomas. Uh, Mary Magdalene is uh, another very important figure in some ways in early Christianity. 
Um, Mary Magdalene is not as important uh, in the history of Christianity as she is in the Da Vinci Code. Uh, in the Da Vinci Code, of course, Jesus and Mary are lovers, and they have a baby, and this baby is the founder of the Mer Merovingian dynasty in France. Well, all of that's just complete, you know, completely made up. Um, what most people don't realize is that Mary Magdalene in the New Testament does not play a prominent role in the life of Jesus. In fact, she hardly ever appears. Mary Magdalene shows up only one time in all four Gospels during Jesus' public ministry. In Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we're told that Joanna, Susanna, and Mary Magdalene and a group of other women supported Jesus and the disciples financially while they went around doing their preaching and teaching and such. That's all it says. That's it in his entire ministry. So there's nothing about her being, you know, one of the inner disciples, being his lover, being anything like that. Where Mary Magdalene comes to be important in the New Testament Gospels is at the end. Because according to the Gospels, Jesus and the disciples went to Jerusalem his last week and a group of women went with them. Jesus got arrested. The men disciples fled, but the women stayed there. They had nothing to fear. They saw him get crucified, including Mary Magdalene. And then they saw where he got buried, and on the third day, they're the ones who went to the tomb and found that it was empty and realized he had been raised from the dead. And Mary is the first to declare that Jesus was raised from the dead. That makes her highly significant. You could argue, if that's historically right, that Mary Magdalene is the first to say that Jesus got raised from the dead, you could make the plausible argument that Mary Magdalene started Christianity. That would be big. I mean, it's not the same thing as having his babies, but it'd still be big. Uh, and so anyway, so that's, that's Mary Magdalene. There are some Gnostic Gospels uh, where Mary figures prominently, uh, and there's a Gospel called the Gospel of Mary, which is a Gnostic revelation that's given to Mary rather than to the disciples. You're welcome. Thank you for a wonderful presentation. You're welcome. My question is about Sophia and wisdom, uh, as you were talking to us about that. And in some of the other writings, these aeons and the many levels of heaven and creation and the beings that come from each other, I noticed in your um, one of the lectures I heard online that you were giving you talked about this being a something that we see in many of these Gnostic writings. So my question is, have you seen a parallel, uh, in particular with Sophia and the 12 that came from her? Is there any parallel between those gods and the Sumerian gods, that, uh, Enki, Enlil, and those that are described by Zechariah Sitchin and that are on the Sumerian tablets. So I, I, you lost me there at the end. Okay, here. let me see if the, I can go back. The Samaritan, is there a similarity between Sophia and those god, gods that came from her and the what? And those gods that are written about in the Sumerian tablets. And in particular, I'm thinking of Enki and Lil and those that came with him. Yes, yeah. I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't know a good answer to your question. I don't know if there's a relationship or not. Thank you. Yes. 
Good evening. Uh, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, would you give us a brief overview of its content? Yeah. Um, right. Okay. So, uh, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene is a little bit frustrating because uh, these holes that I showed you in this thing, uh, Mary, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene is missing entire pages right at the key point. <laughs> but and, and there's missing pages at the beginning. So it starts sort of in the middle of things. And Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's giving them a revelation of some kind uh, about, the, um, about the soul ascending to heaven. Uh, and so there's this revelation at the beginning that, that's just mainly cut off. And then, the then Jesus leaves. Uh, tells them not to be afraid, uh, he needs to leave. He leaves, and the disciples start getting all upset because they're afraid now that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. And Mary Magdalene tells them they don't need to be afraid because Jesus has just said, don't be afraid, and she tries to, she tries to comfort them. The disciples ask Mary if it's possible for her to give them the revelation that Jesus gave to her because they had heard that since she was the most beloved of women that Jesus had revealed something to her. And Mary Magdalene uh, says that uh, she will reveal this, that Jesus did give her a revelation. And she starts off by talking about how um, she had asked Jesus uh, a question and Jesus started responding. And Jesus started explaining how the soul goes up to heaven. And right at that point is where the pages are missing. So, we're not, so it kicks in after that, though. And... The soul is going through certain levels. The, the heavens have levels. And so this material world is the bottom world. And above this, there are layers of heavens. And the soul has to go through these layers. And they're, they're layers like ignorance and darkness. And they're, they're, they're layers that have to be conquered. So it's the, the soul has to conquer these things that are keeping it down here on earth. Um, and these, the, the gods of these heavens don't want the soul to go up, and they're trying to restrict it, but the soul is more powerful and is able, and is able to go up. So Mary tells this, tells this revelation about how the soul then ascends uh, by escaping the entrapments of this material world. She finishes this, and the male disciples start having an argument about whether this could actually be a revelation from Jesus or not, because after all, it was given to a woman. And so, you know... Would Jesus really tell her something that he didn't tell us? Probably not. And they start having this argument, and, and uh, Peter makes Mary cry. And, and the, but finally, finally, Levi says, Peter, you're a hothead. Jesus loves her more than he loved us, and he's revealed this to her. And so then they, uh, they agree with that, and they go out and preach the gospel. So that's, that's the gospel of Mary Magdalene. Welcome. Greetings and welcome. What else can you share about the 12 women disciples? Um, I don't believe there were 12 women disciples. Uh, so there were women followers of Jesus. They weren't called disciples. They just were women who followed him. Uh, and so we don't have a record of, of 12 women disciples. Do you have something specific in mind? I was interested in elaboration on what you've already shared. Uh -huh. I also have additional questions. Um, the first one would be your reference to Sophia with respect to the uh, description of 
the original uh, heavens, or how would you describe prior to the fool and the raving maniac? Yes, yes. So um, Sophia doesn't figure prominently in the Gospel of Judas. She does figure prominently in other, in other Gnostic Gospels and in a variety of ways. In some Gnostic circles, Sophia was the last of the eons that emanated from in the divine realm. And either because, well, in, in some texts, Sophia does something wrong. Um, and it, there are different understandings of what she did wrong. For example, in one form, one form of Gnosticism, Sophia, uh, want, since she's wisdom, she wants to understand the entire divine realm. But this is, this is too much for her, and she overreaches her grasp. And since she overreaches her grasp, she falls, and she falls outside the Pleroma, and this leads to the generation of other divine beings. Um, she, she gives birth to other divine beings without a male consort, and so these divine beings are misformed. And the main divine being she gives birth to is a divine being called Ialdabaoth. Ialdabaoth is um, the one who then says that he alone is God, and he creates the material world as a place of entrapping Sophia. Uh, he and his minions, his other angels, trap Sophia here in human bodies. So that Sophia is herself the spark within some of us. She is, we, those of us who have a spark within have a spark of Sophia, and Sophia, the point of this religion then is to, is to set her free. Um, in most of these systems, though, Sophia is the last one, and somehow or other she gets excluded from the Pleroma leading to, to the creation. Okay, so my overarching question would be, <clears throat> wherein lies the value of of these nuances and various machinations. Yes. So for the Gnostics, I think the idea is what I was trying to say at the end is that in the Orthodox understanding, it's really quite simple. There's, there's a God up there who's created this world. And Gnostics want to say, it just is not that simple. This world is not simple. The world above us is not simple. It's extremely complex. And part of religion is getting your mind around it. And so understanding this divine realm in itself is a kind of act of salvation, where once you understand all of the complexities of the eons and the luminaries and the firmaments and the angels and, and all of that, if you can get your mind around that, then in a sense you have... You, you've acquired the mind of God. And it's that which can help bring salvation then. So that's, that's why they're so complex, and they're not easy to understand. If they're easy to understand, they wouldn't be secret revelations. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for an excellent presentation. I realize that you were talking about Mary Magdalene, and you indicated in some of the responses that you said came from the disciples with respect to the fact that she was basically second class and not important. 
You also indicated that there are at least, as far as you're concerned, 40 other gospels that never made it into the New Testament. And people like Dan Brown have said there are 80. And a number of gospels that could be floating around, discovered or undiscovered. Is it plausible, based on the fact that women were considered second class, that there is indeed a gospel out there somewhere that attests to the fact that Mary Magdalene was indeed married to Jesus, that they did have two children, Sarah and James, and that they lived a life and that Jesus actually engaged in sex on the one hand. And also, is it plausible that there was a very real reason why this was never included in the religions that came from that time and that period, which said basically that women were unclean, women were not important, and to put Mary Magdalene as a central figure at that time would indeed have changed the world's outlook on women, period. So could there have been a group, let's say, that knows of the existence of the gospel that would affirm that in history that you yourself are not aware of or that others are not aware of? Because clearly there is documentation, I think, that we're all aware of that claims to the fact that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and that they indeed had children. So no, is it plausible, is it plausible that that is a possibility from your perspective? There, there's, there's, no, there's no historical document of any kind that says anything about Jesus being married to Mary Magdalene. Okay, I'll give you, I'll give you uh, something very, there's a group in France that I went to visit. And the group, there's a group of uh, monks and they're called the Demichi group of monks. That's uh, the Demichi group of monks, and they're in France, and they still have the grotto, according to them, that yes. Mary Magdalene passed her yes. last 30 years of her life, blah, blah, blah. And when you go into there and you go into the grotto, they have etchings that allegedly was Jesus and etchings of Mary Magdalene and their two children, Sarah and James. So I raised the question, I was surprised, number one, that that was their belief, that's fundamental to their belief that they were actually married, and they began to tell me why they believe that this is so. Now, I didn't see the documentation, clearly. I'm only telling you that this is what yes. was true, and other people believe this fact. So I'm, I'm asking you, do you think it is plausible as a historian who has found and examined some documentation, you didn't know that the lost gospel of Judas existed until it was found, for example, and that verified certain things for you, whether you believe it or not, but from a historical perspective. So I'm only trying to find out if you think it is plausible as a historian that Mary Magdalene could have been married to Jesus and they indeed had children. Is it a possibility or a potential? Uh, no, I don't think so. So <laughs> um, let, me, let me, so it, it is true that you can go to a lot of places in the world and they will tell you legends of early Christianity. Mm -hmm. So you can go to India and they will tell you that Thomas started Christianity here. Mm -hmm. You can go to Alexandria, Egypt, and they will tell you Mark started Christianity here. You can go throughout the world and they will relate what they understand to be the history of the place. These are based on legends. So if you're asking me as a historian, are these legends based on history, I'm telling you no. 
So uh, the idea of Mary Magdalene going to France is not found in any early Christian document. You start finding it in the, in the Middle Ages. Uh, its most, uh, its most uh, popular form was in uh, a book called The Golden Legend that was published in 1279. Uh, and that's where most of these legends today go back from. This is the most widely read book in the Middle Ages, uh, even more than the Bible in many places. Uh, but it's not based on any historical record that we have. Now, if you're asking, is it possible that there was a gospel that had that, that no longer survives? Uh, anything is possible. But historians have to go on the basis of what's probable. And uh, the, the fact that you have later legends uh, doesn't make something probable. It simply means that later legends showed up. I will say there is one gospel that is referred to by a 4th century church father named Epiphanius, which does connect Jesus and Mary Magdalene and sex, but not in the way that you might suspect. Um, Epiphanius was a heresiologist, uh, a completely unreliable heresiologist, who wrote a book in the year 380 called uh, The Panarion, which means the medicine chest. Uh, he saw it as providing the antidotes for the bites of the serpents of heresy. And in this book, he, he discusses 80 different heresies prior to his day, uh, in, uh, including a group that he called the Phibianites, who were a group of Gnostics. According to Epiphanius, the Phibianites had a book called The Greater Questions of Mary, referring to Mary Magdalene. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he gives only one quotation from this book, The Greater Questions of Mary. And according to this quotation, what happened was Jesus took Mary Magdalene up onto a mountaintop. And while she was watching, he reached into his side and pulled out a woman. And he started having sex with her. And when he came to climax, he pulled out, gathered a semen in his hand, started eating it and saying, this you must do if you want to have eternal life. Mary fainted. <laughs> and that's the end of the story. That's, that's, what, Ep, that's what Epiphania says. So uh, this is... Uh, Ep, Epiphanius claims that this group of the Phibionites liked this gospel because this replicated their own rituals. According to Epiphanius, these Phibionites had a particular um, uh, style of worship that he found to be completely scandalous, and he was a bit of a voyeur, so he tells us all about it. According to Epiphanius, the way these, uh, these Gnostic Christians worshipped is they had their meetings at night, and when they would get together, they would all greet one another and shake hands, but the, the ones who were the real members would tickle themselves under the wrist so they would know that they were the, they were the real members, or it might have actually meant, be meant as an erotic gesture. Uh, when the outsiders would leave, the insiders would have a big meal and stuff themselves and get drunk on wine, and then they would each pair off with somebody other than their own spouse and go off and have sex. And when the uh, man reached climax, he would pull out, they would eat his semen, and they'd say, this is the body of Christ. And when they, if the woman was having her period, they would gather some of her blood and consume that and say, this is the blood of Christ. 
Epiphanius goes on to say that those who were high priests in this organization didn't uh, have to have sex with women. They could do it in the privacy of their own home. Uh, they could uh, engage in sacred masturbation. Uh, Epiph oh, the other thing he says about these men having sex with these women is that the whole idea is that when they came to climax, they were supposed to call out the name of one of the divine beings who inhabited one of the 365 realms of heaven. So that their soul could, this was like a password to get through that. And so since your soul had to go down from heaven and go back up to heaven, that meant that everybody had to engage in the sex ritual 760 times. Uh, 365 up, 365, so, or 730 times. Um, so, uh, right, so, yeah, so, <laughs> that's a gospel I want to be discovered. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I actually don't think it existed, but I wish it did, and I hope it did. I mean, I think it'd be great, but I, it, it's probably not going to happen. So, are there other gospels that could contain something? Yes. Is it likely that they have something about Jesus and Mary being married? It's possible. Um, there is another gospel that does mention Jesus and Mary uh, uh, having a relationship, but it isn't. It doesn't probably doesn't mean what people reading it naturally might think it means. It's the Gospel of Philip. It was discovered in 1945. Uh, the Gospel of Philip is a, um, a, a very interesting gospel, but it's very hard to understand. At one point. In the Gospel of Philip, we're told that um, Jesus and Mary uh, uh, were Jesus and Mary frequently kissed. Um, this is this is another manuscript that page that has holes in the manuscript because worms have eaten it away. And what the what the passage says is that Jesus frequently used to kiss Mary on the and there's a hole in the manuscript. <laughs> So, you're not sure where he was kissing her, <laughs> but it was someplace. <laughs> so, uh, now the thing about that manuscript, people have used that, it's actually in the Da Vinci Code, it quotes it without pointing out that there's a hole in the manuscript, but um, the thing about the Gospel of Philip is this probably is not meant as a sexual act. In the Gospel of Philip, kissing was a ritual that was engaged in in the Christian worship services, as it was in other, in other circles. And the reason for the holy kiss was because the word of God comes from the mouth. And so when you kiss a fellow Christian, you're delivering to them the word of God. And so this is saying that Jesus gave a revelation to Mary. This is, it isn't some kind of divine foreplay. It's just, uh, it's just a revelation. So those are the passages that talk about Jesus and Mary that have anything having to do with sex. Is it possible that there's some other gospel that we don't have that mentions them being married? Yes, it's, it's possible, but it's seen. So that's one set of questions. The other set of questions is, was Jesus married to Mary Magdalene? And I can, historically, I, the answer is absolutely not. No, he wasn't married to Mary, Mary Magdalene. So, yes, thank you for the question. Yeah, thank you very much, and best wishes to you on your research and your future discoveries. Great, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hi. Hi. Um, I found your book really interesting, and I remember being angry a few times reading it. 
and um, uh, in the summer, something like that. Anyways, I'm, I'm kind of interested. Um, you said that history, which is what you study and look at, um, is often, um, I thought you said something really astute when you were saying that it's written by the winners. And you said, that's the orthodoxy. And then we call these others the heresy. That is, that they don't have the right belief. Um, is that what most historians think? I think that seems very um, forward-thinking and progressive. I have not necessarily heard that same or understood that. In fact, what I've often heard is that the orthodoxy is the right belief and that the heresy is indeed heresy, even as you were talking to the last person and saying, well, this is kind of a her heretical point of view. Yeah. And so I'm just, that was my first part to the question. Do you yeah. think that people that like you and other historians really do think that and are aware that the history, that is that which is written, is written by the winners, yes. is written by males. Yeah. It really is a select perception as opposed to something that may have been broader. Yes, that's, that's a very widely held view. The only people who don't <clears throat> hold this view with respect to early Christianity mm -hmm. are conservative Christians who are themselves mm -hmm. standing in the tradition that won out. Right. And they want to maintain that this is the orthodox tradition. It's always been orthodox. Right. It goes all the way back to Jesus and the apostles. They handed it on. And so it's always been orthodoxy. And, but but um, apart, from, apart from conservative evangelical or fundamentalist Christians, that's not the, uh, that everyone else. That's not else, the widespread. Pardon me? That's not widespread. No, it's, it's, what you it's would just say. found among conservative Christians and fundamentalists. Well, that's great. Yeah. I, I, um, I was not so clearly aware of that. So yeah, that, no, that's really a helpful thing. Yes. Um, the second part of my question um, is when you then are looking at history and what you would call were history, just like in your books that you're writing, I have not read the forgery ones, where you are, I assume, documenting that history has been changed and plagiarized, et cetera. Um, and we certainly see it today, uh, that goes on. Um, do you think that when you start to say, um, as you said to the last speaker, well, these are legends, so they're not, we don't really consider them historical information. Are you then saying that the really only history would be something that's written? No. And I'm not saying that history is the only thing that matters, but I thought that she was asking about whether historically Jesus really was married to Mary Magdalene. Uh, right. And I'm saying that you, you might have legends about that later. Right. By legend, I mean something that is a story that is not rooted in what actually happened historically. How, so would, I think you know, how would you know that? How do I know that Jesus wasn't married to Mary Magdalene? No, no, no. How would you know? How would you know that a legend is not based in the rooted of history? Yeah, well, that's what history does. History tries to figure out what actually happened and what are rumors and legends 
that did not actually happen. And so I historians have, a method have methodologies for trying to figure out what actually happened in the past. And it's, it's, you know, I mean, people, we do this all the time, right? right? We ourselves want to know, you know, with uh, a child or with a spouse, did you really do that? Right. Right? Well, you right. want to know if they really did that. Right. Uh, or is that just something you heard that didn't really happen? And so that's what historians do with, with the past. And it's not, a, it's not an exact science. I mean, it's, you know, you can't, you can't, Conduct, it, conduct history the way you conduct a chem, chemical experiment or something because the past is past and there's no access to it except from sources that survive. And so you have to evaluate the sources and there are ways of doing that that are more productive for figuring out what actually happened and what didn't happen. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I want to say is that I, I am not belittling the legends. I'm not saying, right. oh, it's just a legend. You know, I, in fact, I mean, legends are terrifically interesting. And, uh, they just may not be history. Is it what it you may said. not be what actually happened, but that's just one set of questions. One set of questions is what really happened. The other mm -hmm. is what were people saying about it. Mm -hmm. And both things are equally interesting, but they're mm -hmm. but they're different different questions. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hey Bart. Thank you so much. Uh, we do have a lot of questions that have come in uh, from our streaming students. So we've been collating those and I've chosen a few. Many of them have been duplicates. But before we get to that, uh, Jay-Z asked if you would, on her behalf, uh, she asked you about what your belief, your persuasion was uh, that you shared earlier this evening. Would you be willing to share that with our school and explain why? Right. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Jay-Z. <laughs> All right. I'm going to give a fuller scoop, actually, than I gave uh, over dinner. Um, so uh, just to explain a little bit about why I am what I am. Um, okay. So brief sort of autobiographical thing. I was raised as a Christian in the Episcopal Church uh, as a uh, rather, uh, what do you say, so social Christian, uh, not, not completely religious. We, I was more like an Episcopagan. <laughs> um, but then when I was in high school, I had a born-again experience and became a very hardcore evangelical Christian, evangelistic trying to convert people, very uh, hardcore believer, believed that the Bible had no mistakes of any kind whatsoever. And after high school, I went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, which is a, uh, where we used to say Bible is our middle name. <laughs> um, and it's a, it's, a fundamentalist, it's a fundamentalist Bible college. Uh, just so we're on the same page, when I say fundamentalist, uh, let me just tell you what I mean. A fundamentalist is no fun, too much damn, and not enough mental. <laughs> so, I, was, I was a fundamentalist. I got interested in the study of the New Testament as a student at Moody Bible Institute when I was 17 years old. My first semester, I was taking a class on the Gospel of John, and you know, I was committed, I was committed to it as a sacred book, but I thought, this, this guy teaching this class 
is teaching the Gospel of John, and he's getting paid for that. This is amazing. I want to do that. And so I decided I wanted to become a Bible scholar when I was 17, and I never, never, uh, never left that path. I, I went through, uh, majored in Bible theology at Moody Bible Institute. I went to Wheaton College, which is the alma mater of Billy Graham, which was a step towards liberalism for me. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, I took Greek in college and was pretty good at it. I decided I wanted to study Greek, the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament in graduate school, and so I went off to Princeton Theological Seminary to study with the world's expert on Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, a man named Bruce Metzger, who was a very famous scholar, a very pious uh, Christian gentleman who was my mentor for seven years uh, and was a, a very important figure in my life. While I was at Princeton Theological Seminary, I started realizing that my beliefs in the Bible really didn't make sense because there are, in fact, mistakes in the Bible, and they're there for anybody to see, and I started seeing them. And once I started finding the mistakes in the Bible, that started changing my theology about everything, and as time went on, I started questioning whether Jesus really was the Son of God. Eventually, I started questioning whether, whether there was a God. Uh, my, my scholarship led me away from evangelical Christianity to become a liberal Christian. I was a liberal Christian for a number of years, still a believer. I still believed in God. I still thought Jesus was special and that, that the Bible was important, but I didn't think it was the inspired word of God or anything like that. But I, but I, I was a liberal Christian. Um, it was only about 15 years ago that I decided I could no longer be a believer in any sense uh, because, um, not because of my scholarship on the Bible, but because of the problem of suffering. I got to a point where I simply didn't believe that there's a God who's in control of this world. If you look around at all of the misery and the pain and the suffering, it, it doesn't look to me like God's intervening in this world and answering prayer and, and saving people and helping people. It doesn't look like that at all. In fact, we live in a world where every 12 seconds, some child dies of starvation. So, I mean, it's nice that I prayed to God and he helped me find a parking place, but, I mean, this, this kid just died of starvation. So, uh, you know, and every 12 seconds. And people, 300 people every hour die of malaria. And, you know, you can, you've got your own list. So I came to a point where I simply didn't believe that God existed anymore. And at that point, I became an agnostic. Uh, and this is where the dinner conversation kicks in. I became an agnostic uh, because I thought that agnostics and atheists were two degrees of the same thing. Uh, when I became an agnostic, I didn't realize that both agnostics and atheists, in fact, are extremely militant about their positions. <laughs> atheists all think that agnostics are simply wimpy atheists. And agnostics think that all atheists are simply arrogant agnostics. <laughs> I mean, so the atheists say, well, you're just too chicken to say what you really think. And the, the agnostics say, yeah, well, you actually don't know anything either. So, uh, so now, today, I actually consider myself to be both an agnostic and an atheist because I don't think they're two degrees of the same thing. I think they're two different things. Agnosticism has to do with what you know and atheism has to do with what you believe. So the word agnostic, I mean, I've been throughout here talking about Gnostics as people who know, and agnostic is somebody who doesn't know. 
And so if you ask me, is there some kind of divine superior force in the universe? I don't know. And neither does anyone else, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, people, of course, say they do. I don't think, they, I don't think anybody knows. Uh, I, I mean, I know most of you think you do know. So you're Gnostics. <laughs> All right, so you're Gnostics. I'm agnostic. I don't know. And, uh, but do I believe that there's a superior God? No, I don't believe, I don't believe in the God of the Bible. So I'm, I'm an atheist as well. So that, 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 that's my answer. I'm both an agnostic and an atheist. Thank you for your truth and honesty. <laughs> We're grateful. Uh, from the world, our first question we have is from Dominique Gum. She's writing us tonight actually in the morning over there in Barcelona, Spain. She says, uh, Jesus had a son named Marcus, did he? And is this the one that we call St. Mark the Evangelist? Um, well, historically, the answer is no. Jesus did not have a son named Marcus. Jesus was almost certainly not married. Um, and um, so uh, Mark the Evangelist is not, uh, even in the tr Christian tradition, not related to, to Jesus. John Mark is a figure who appears in the book of Acts, uh, who is a, uh, a Christian in the book of Acts. Uh, he's not one of the 12 disciples. He's somebody who converts. He's a Jew who lives in Jerusalem, who comes from a wealthy family, who, uh, according to the later legends, ended up uh, starting the church in Alexandria, Egypt. So he started Christianity in Egypt. So if you talk to Coptic Christians today, they'll tell you that Mark is the one who originally started the church. That's a later legend. That's, that's almost certainly not historically, uh, historically accurate. He's, he, is thought, uh, he was thought by some to have written the second gospel, the New Testament, the gospel of Mark, uh, although we actually don't know who wrote the gospel of Mark. Whoever wrote it is uh, anonymous, doesn't, doesn't tell us what his name is, but it, it came to be attributed to Mark who is thought to be a companion of Peter. So that the Gospel of Mark, by that tradition, then carries the power, the, the authority of, of Peter. But um, I, think, I, I think Jesus was not married at all. And that he, uh, I mean, I can give you, I've said this several times, and I, I keep seeing skeptical looks on your face when I say it, that, uh, <laughs> that I don't think Jesus was married. So let me, let me, let me tell you why I think this. Uh, so, um, all right, several, several things just to kind of clear out the brush. In the New Testament, there's no word about Jesus being married, no word about him ha having a lover or a spouse or a girlfriend or a boyfriend, although he did run around with those 12 disciples. <laughs> uh, so, um, so, all right, so there's that. Some people... Uh, basing their views again on Dan Brown, say that Jewish men were always married in the ancient world. Well, it's not true. It can't be true. It's, we know it's not true. The reason it can't be true is because in the ancient world, except in times of real serious war, men outnumbered women all the time. Men outnumbered women all the time because so many women died in childbirth. And so there were always more men than women, which means every man could not be married. 
It's just a sociological fact. Apart from that, we know that there were Jewish men who were not married in the days of Jesus. Jewish men, the Jewish men who were not married in the days of Jesus happened to be Jewish men who held the same theological and ideological views that Jesus had. They were apocalypticists. An apocalypticist is a Jewish person who thinks that the end of the age is imminent, that God very soon is going to intervene in the course of evil affairs to overthrow the forces of evil and set up his good kingdom on earth. And this is going to happen very soon. This is the view that was held, for example, among the Jews who produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered in 1947. This was a, Jew, a group of Jews called the Essenes, and we know from a number of ancient sources that the Essenes, who held these apocalyptic views, did not get married. Why didn't they get married? Well, we don't know exactly, but they were people thinking that the end was coming very soon, and they wanted to prepare for it, and they probably thought that marriage would interfere with their preparations for the end of all time. Jesus also was an apocalyptic Jew who thought that the end was coming within his disciples' lifetime. He told his disciples, some of you standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come in power. And he meant, that, not that, you know, you're going to die and go to heaven. He meant the, the kingdom of God's coming here. The end of the age is imminent. We know of another Jew who was unmarried. The apostle Paul was Jewish, and he told his followers in Corinth that he wished they would be like him, namely, celibate. He also was an apocalyptic Jew. So the idea of an apocalyptic Jew like Jesus would be unmarried is not unprecedented. In fact, it, was, it seems to have been well known at the time. But there is a piece of evidence that Jesus absolutely was not married. It's a little bit complicated. So um, Jesus had a controversy with another group of Jews who... Oh, God, I don't want to get into that. That would take five minutes. Um, Jesus had a controversy with a group of Jews. I'm not going to get into the details. Um, where Jesus tells these Sadducees... Okay, I've got to give it. Okay, so... <laughs> I mean, it's not that interesting, but okay. So, so here's the deal. So, so Jesus believes that at the end of the age, people are going to be raised from the dead. This is an apocalyptic view. Jesus and other apocalypticists thought that, that when, when, when God destroys the forces of evil that are making this world such a wretched place, he's going to bring in his kingdom and everybody's going to be raised from the dead. Uh, and they're going to, people who have been against God are going to face eternal punishment and people who have sided with God are going to enter into his kingdom. So there was another group of, um, of Jews called the Sadducees who were uh, very uh, important in uh, first century. They were the power play players in first century Palestine. And the Sadducees did not believe in the future resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees believed that once you were dead, you stayed dead. You ceased to exist. That's why they were Sadducees. Okay, okay, all right, all right. Okay, okay. Okay. All right. So, 
So the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. And they think the idea of a resurrection is ridiculous. So they come up to Jesus and they say, okay, you believe in a resurrection. So here we've got this problem. In the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it says that if, if a man marries and he dies leaving his wife childless, his brother is supposed to marry the woman and bring up a child in the dead, dead brother's name so that his line can be continued. Yes, okay, that is what it says. They say, okay, so there's a man who married this woman and he, and he was one of seven brothers. And he died, and so his brother married her, but then no children, he died, then the third one married, he died, all seven married her. So in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? <laughs> well, good question. Uh, right, so they're, they're setting a trap for Jesus, and if you've read the New Testament, you know Jesus can always get out of these traps, and what he does in this case is he says that they haven't read the scriptures carefully, because if they had, they would know that in heaven, people will be like the angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage. Angels don't marry. People won't marry. There's not going to be a problem with these seven guys. Now, okay, so what does that have to do with Jesus being married? It's just this. Jesus taught that the end of the age was coming soon, that God's kingdom was soon going to arrive, and that kingdom was going to be a utopian-like place. There's not going to be any war. There won't be any natural disasters. There'll be no oppression. There'll be no, uh, no injustice. There'll be no hatred. It'll be a perfect place. And Jesus' ethics were an attempt to get his disciples to start living in those ways in the present. If there'll be no war in the kingdom, you should be a peacemaker now. If there'll be no hatred in the kingdom, you should love everybody now. If there'll be no illness in the kingdom, you should heal the sick now. If there'll be no demons in the kingdom, you should cast out demons now. If there'll be no oppression in the kingdom, you should work for justice now. You should implement the ideals of the kingdom in the present. If in the kingdom there'll be no marriage or giving in marriage, then to implement that ideal in the present means not to get married. If that's what Jesus taught, he almost certainly wasn't married. That's the logic. So I think Jesus wasn't married. Uh, I think it would have, it would have undercut his, his, his apocalyptic teaching, and I, so I, I simply don't think he was. And of course, in the tradition, he wasn't married. So, yes. Uh, the next question is from our student Pat Kelly here at Yelm, which is a uh, perfect uh, next question. She says, was Jesus a rabbi, and didn't rabbis have to be married? <laughs> Rats. I wish I would have thought of that. <laughs> uh, right. Okay. Yes. Okay. Com it's, it's actually, it's a very good question, and it's a little bit complicated. <laughs> the complication is uh, we don't have records of rabbinic teachings from the first century. So when people say rabbis got married, they're referring to texts that were written centuries after Jesus' day. There were no rabbis in the technical sense in Jesus' day. The rabbinic offices were later. The earliest rabbinic text we have is the Mishnah. The Mishnah was written around the year 200. Uh, Jesus died around the year 30. 
The Mishnah is the core of the Jewish Talmud, which uh, dates from, from end of 4th, early 5th century. So we're talking about hundreds of years after Jesus' day. And the mistake that scholars made until like about 20 or 30 years ago um, was to assume that what later rabbis said applied hundreds of years earlier. Scholars today don't think it worked that way any more than you would think that some, you know, whatever your traffic laws in Yelm are, that somehow that tells you about what traffic laws were in the year 1653, right? I mean, you're, you're living hundreds of years later. Well, the rabbis were living hundreds of years later, and so uh, whatever they said about marriage of rabbis later uh, has no relevance to Jesus. So Jesus is called a rabbi in the New Testament, but at that point, it's not a technical term for, for an office. It'd be like today, um, you know, my title is I'm, I'm a professor at a university. So that's a, that's a kind of title. I'm also a teacher. But there are lots of people who are teachers who are not professors. So professor is, is like a title that tells you something about my status in the university, and teacher is just something I do that, lots of, that most of you do as well. So all of you could be called teachers, but you're not university professors. So rabbi is kind of like that. Later it came to be like university professor, but in the days of Jesus it just meant teacher, literally meant teacher. Jay-Z is asking um, to follow on your conversation tonight. Um, she's saying that in your discussion that all Christians think that God wrote the Bible, and she would like for you to explain about that. And um, who do you uh, think uh, handled that? Who wrote the Bible? Yes. <laughs> right. Uh, okay, I, I don't think that all Christians think wrote the Bible. I don't think that all Christians think that God wrote the Bible. Uh, there are Christians who do think that God wrote the Bible, uh, especially in my part of the world. I, I teach in the South. I teach in North Carolina, uh, which, as you may have heard, is part of the Bible Belt. Uh, and so uh, where I live, where I live, actually Christians, uh, many Christians where I live will say, if you don't believe in the Bible, you can't be a Christian. That, maybe Christians say that here too, but they certainly say where I live, which is historical nonsense. Because belief in the Bible has never been a criterion for being Christian, historically. If you look at the creeds of the Christian church historically, the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, these are creeds that Christians say during their worship services that state what they believe. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in his only Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, etc. So you have these creeds that say what you believe, and there's not a word about the Bible in these creeds. So why is it now all of a sudden that the creed is you have to believe in the Bible? Well, it's a, it's a very modern cultural phenomenon that has hit, uh, principally hit America. It has not been the standard Christian belief. Um, but there are, so there are Christians who think you have to believe in the Bible. There are other Christians who say, no, you don't have to believe in the Bible. I know a lot of Christians who who certainly don't believe in the Bible. They don't, they don't think Jesus was born of a virgin. They don't think he was literally raised from the dead. But they still call themselves Christian. Um, but there are Christians who do think that God wrote the Bible. It's very conservative uh, evangelical Christians. And um, yeah, well, my first movement away from the faith was realizing that God did not write the Bible. Um, 
because I realize that there are contradictions in the Bible, there are discrepancies in the Bible, there is mistaken information in the Bible. There, uh, you know, God, God had nothing to do with it. And then I can, you know, of course, I don't think God exists. So of course, God didn't write the Bible. Um, <laughs> so who wrote the Bible? People wrote the Bible. I think the Bible's a great book. I mean, I, I love the Bible. I read the Bible all the time. I read the New Testament in Greek. I read the Old Testament in Hebrew. I study it. I think about it. This is very much a part of my life. But it's a human book. Uh, my wife is a scholar of Shakespeare. She reads Shakespeare. She memorizes Shakespeare. She thinks about Shakespeare. She lives Shakespeare. She eats, drinks, sleeps Shakespeare. And, uh, and, and I'm that way with the Bible. It's not because she thinks Shakespeare is inspired by God. It's a, great, it's a great corpus, and I think the Bible's a great corpus. So, uh, anyway, yeah, so uh, pe people wrote the Bible. And she also asks, would you be willing to discuss your concepts with the Book of Revelations by St. John in particular at the end of the book? You mean the end of the New Testament? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Book of Revelation. Right. Well, okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> 20 seconds on the Book of Revelation. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's actually very interesting teaching the Book of Revelation in uh, the South because um, my students, li like a lot of conservative Christians, they think that the Book of Revelation is giving a blueprint for what's going to happen in the future. And if you go to a Christian bookstore today, you'll, you go to a se the section of the bookstore that's on Christian prophecy, and it's all about the book of Revelation and about how the prophecies are coming to fulfillment today. And, uh, you know, uh, this has always been going on. Uh, every generation thinks that the book of Revelation is being fulfilled in its generation. This became particularly clear to me uh, when I moved to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I moved from New Jersey, where nobody believed in the Bible. <laughs> um, and so it was a bit of a shock uh, moving to... Well, I moved to North Carolina in 1988, and when I moved, at the precise time I moved in 1988, there was a little booklet that was in circulation that some of you may have heard of. Uh, I need, I need to give background because we're not in the South. Uh, do you all know what the term rapture means? Good. Okay. This book was called, okay, so the rapture is when Jesus comes back from heaven and takes all the believers out of the world before the tribulation happens and all hell breaks out on earth. So uh, the, the rapture is Jesus' return from heaven to inaugurate the end of time. Um, when I moved to Chapel Hill in 1988, there was a book uh, uh, that was in circulation called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. <laughs> there were two million copies of this book in circulation and I had students whose parents believed, I had students whose parents literally sold the farm because they thought Jesus was coming back. So this book was written, the guy who wrote it wasn't an idiot. He had been a, a, uh, a rocket engineer for NASA before he started writing books like this. And he had, 
he had 88 reasons, and they were pretty interesting reasons. So, uh, so I'll, get, I'll give you one of them. Uh, it's not from the book of Revelation. Most of them are from the book of Revelation. But this one, this is, was my favorite one. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and they say, when's the end going to come? And Jesus says, learn the lesson from the fig tree. When the fig tree puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So too, when all these things place, you know that the end is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away before all these things take place. Okay, Matthew chapter 20, 24, excuse me, Matthew chapter 24. So, uh, Edgar Weissenant, this NASA scientist, rocket engineer, who, who uh, wrote this book, tries to interpret the, what this means. What does it mean when the fig tree puts forth its leaves, this generation won't pass away? What's it mean? Well, he points out that in the Bible, the fig tree is often an image for the nation of Israel. When the fig tree puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So that's an image of the fig tree being dead through the winter, putting forth its leaves and coming back to life. So when was Israel dead? Well, Israel was destroyed in the year 70 by the Romans. When did it become a nation again? 1948. This generation will not pass away before all things take place. In the Bible, a generation is 40 years. 1948 plus 40, bingo. 1988. So, uh, according, to, um, according to Edgar Weissenant, this guy who wrote this book, Jesus was going to come back on Ro during the week of Rosh Hashanah in September of 1988. Some of his detractors, even among the fundamentalists, said that they were a little disturbed by this, and they pointed out to him, look, Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour when the end will come. And Weissenant replied, I don't know the day or the hour. I just know the week. <laughs> so, so Rosh Hashanah came and went, no Jesus. And you, you probably can predict what Edgar Weissman did. He wrote another book. And in this other book, he pointed out that he had forgotten that when they came up with the modern calendars, there was no year zero, that it went from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D., and so his calculations were off by a year, so it's going to be 1989. <laughs> and so it goes. So, uh, right, okay, so, so the thing is, everybody in my world, and not everybody, a large proportion of the people in my world who are Christian think that the book of Revelation especially is predicting what's going to happen in the future and the prophecies are being fulfilled. Um, in my book on the historical Jesus that I, uh, the, it was one of my earlier books, it's called Jesus the Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium. I try to show that Jesus was an apocalypticist who had this idea that the end was coming soon and what I do is I start out in the first chapter by showing that in the 1980s, people thought the end was going to come very soon. In the 1970s, they thought it was going to come before 1988. In the 1960s, you start pushing it back, and you can find every generation thinks it's the last generation. And they all have two things in common. 
Everybody who's, every Christian who's ever said that the world is going to end within their own generation have had two things in common. One is they base it on the book of Revelation. The second is they have all been incontrovertibly wrong. <laughs> every single one of them. That you would think that would give somebody pause. You know, when you're thinking, oh, maybe we're right this time. Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, when I teach the book of Revelation at Chapel Hill, what I do is I try to stress that the book of Revelation, in fact, is not even intending to be a blueprint for the future. And I talk, what, what students don't realize, and what most people don't realize, how, why would they realize this? The book of Revelation is a kind of writing, it's a genre of writing called the apocalypse. It's an apocalypse. And we have other instances of apocalypses from the ancient world. Other Jewish and Christian writings that are in this form of book. It's a genre. So you have short story genre, you have limerick poems that are a genre, epic poems are a genre, novels are a genre, apocalypses are a genre. And if you understand how the genre works, you can understand the book. Uh, but if you don't understand how the genre works, then you assume it's talking about what's going to happen next week sometime. And so the key is to understand the genre. Once you understand the genre, you realize this is not predicting the future. This is talking about the present at the time this author was writing. He was writing to talk about how God is going to do something about the miserable condition of this place. And if you just hold on and have faith for a little while longer, you'll survive the suffering you're going through. Just hold on. Hold on to your hope and your faith. If you do that, you'll survive. That's what the book's about. The book is not about what's going to happen in Rosh Hashanah 2008 or whatever. Yeah. Okay, yes. Uh, Shelley Lucas is writing from here in the Olympia, Washington area, and she asks, uh, do you believe there are human beings on this planet who do not have a divine spark? Do I believe that, personally? Yes. I, I believe, That's her question. Well, it depends what you mean by divine spark. I mean, I, I don't believe in God, so I don't, I don't believe in divine sparks. I mean, I, um, so, uh, I mean, I... I, I guess another way of putting it, I don't believe that, I, it's true, I don't believe that there are haves and have-nots. In other words, I don't think that there are some of us who are in some way spiritually superior to others of us. I think that we, we're all human and we, we're, we're all on the same playing field. But I don't, I don't believe in a divine spark that's something outside of being human. I think, I think we are uh, completely and totally uh, human and that we are nothing else. Okay, and I, 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 that may not go down here very well. <laughs> you can read our audience faces, well, you know, right? I, <laughs> I, I do have a wife and kids who would like to get out of here. I've got to say, though, you're a lot more fun than the fundamentalist groups I talk about. <laughs> As we've been taught in this school, the greatest of things are achieved in a light heart. <laughs> and this is our last question for tonight. This is from Rachel Norton. She's writing us from down under in Australia. She says, first of all, thank you for your great presentation. She asks, um, 
is after all of your research into the gospels and the history of religion, what is your overview of creation and the spiritual realm? Yeah, good question. Right. Uh, yes, here again, we may have a few disagreements. <laughs> um, I, I think that we are the products of time and chance. Um, I think that uh, I, am a, uh, I am an unrepentant and unreconstructed materialist. I think this world is all there is. Uh, I don't think that there's a spiritual realm apart from this world. Um, I think that, um, I think, I mean, I, I and no one knows what happened before the Big Bang, but I think that, um, that this universe came into being by forces that we don't understand, but I don't think there was any divine creation behind it. I think that we humans live and we die, and that's the end of our story. Um, when I was a Christian, uh, I was afraid of adopting that view for two reasons. I was afraid of thinking that this life would be all there is. I was afraid to think that because, well, for two things. One was that I thought that if that were true, if I, if I came to think that, I would have no moral compass. I'd have no, nothing to guide my behavior. And that uh, the result of that was that it would be an orgy every night. When I became an agnostic, I realized that once a week is perfectly fine. <laughs> the other reason I was afraid of... <laughs> The other reason I was afraid was because it had been drummed in my head that uh, there's eternal life and that if you leave the faith, you're going to roast in hell forever. And uh, I did not think that was a pleasant prospect, and I uh, was afraid of that. And emotionally, it was more of an emotional, it was emotionally, it was very, very difficult for me to get over that teaching that had been drummed into me about eternal life, which is something I had thought since I was old enough to think. Uh, and so when I was in my 20s and 30s and moving away from the faith, this was a very troubling uh, idea for me. I also thought that coming to think that this life is all there is would lead to a view of despair and um, meaninglessness, and I would find no purpose in life if this life is all there is. Since I've become an agnostic, I've come to realize that that is completely wrong. I have to say that for me personally, life is much more meaningful now that I think this life is all there is. Because I feel now that life, it's a gift without a giver, in a sense. I feel life is a gift, and I feel that I want to grab for everything I can in life. I want to enjoy life to its fullest. And so I do that much more now than I ever did before. Uh, and it's, it's not by the orgy once a week. It's by, um, it's by loving and appreciating the, the little things in life. 
uh, good food and good wine, family, friends, relishing deep conversations, personal relationships, grabbing for all of that that I can, uh, which is what I try to do with my life now, and I find it more meaningful now than when I was a Christian. The other thing for me, though, is that I find that it is impossible for me to enjoy life to the fullest if I know that other people are suffering and I'm doing nothing about it. For me, personally, I have to be doing things for people who are experiencing pain and misery and despair. And so uh, I, I've tried to devote, to devote part of my life to helping people who are in desperate need. Uh, one of the things I do is I have a blog. I'm going to uh, throw out a, uh, a little uh, pitch here. I have a blog. Uh, you can find it on the net. The Bart Ehrman, it's the Bart Ehrman blog. The Ehrman blog. Um, people have to pay uh, $24.95 for a year subscription to get on the blog. And the blog is all about early Christianity. Every day, six days of the week, I post about a thousand word post. Uh, dealing with some aspect of early Christianity. So today I, I posted on a new gospel that was discovered, uh, an interesting new gospel, uh, it, it's the gospel manuscript of the gospel of John, an interesting new manuscript that was discovered the gospel of John. I talk about all sorts of things, historical Jesus, early Christianity, Gnostic gospels, etc., etc. And uh, I give every cent to charity. Uh, so last year I raised, um, first year of my, my blog, I raised $37,000. Uh, that I gave to charity every cent and this year I hope to do better and I hope some of you would be willing to join this blog because uh, Well because I hope that you share the values I have I know that we have different opinions about many things especially spiritual realities But I think we can all agree that we should live life to the fullest here And that we should help people in need because doing so is what in part makes us human Thank you very much <laughs>